And now we're going to read from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 30. So please flick to Romans if you've got a Bible with you. Chapter 8. Okay. Chapter 8, starting at verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he, he, whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Thank you, Kat. And thank you, everybody else who's been involved in the service so far. And again, a good morning to all of you and a very warm welcome to you. And particularly if you are a visitor in our midst, you're particularly welcome. It's good to have you with us. As you've heard from Mark, we're in a series at the moment. It's called Five Burning Questions. There are certain key questions when you share the gospel with people, when you share your faith with people that they might come back at you with. And they are not believing what you're saying. They don't accept what you're saying. They ask these kinds of questions. And so this morning... We are asking the question, why does a good, all-powerful God allow evil? Now, you all will have examples of suffering and evil that will come to your minds. And also, many of you have experienced deeply traumatic things. Evil is a thing in our world. What I'm about to talk about is in, in my experience, the worst case of evil and suffering that I have personally experienced. Many of you have heard me talk about this before. It nevertheless goes to the question that we are trying to answer this morning. In 1993, I was a first-year student at Theological College. I was also on the part-time staff of my church, a church in South Africa in Cape Town called St. James's Church, a church in, in a suburb called Kenilworth. On the 25th of July, during the evening service, 
with over a thousand people in attendance, five men suddenly burst into the auditorium from the stage side, from a, through a door at the bottom of the stage, and raked the congregation with automatic rifle fire. They also lobbed several hand grenades into the congregation. Someone in the congregation had a revolver and shot back and hit one of those assailants in the leg, and that caused them to run away, to retreat back through the door they had come in. The picture that's of the newspaper that you can see on the screen, I've covered the front page because it's a confronting picture of some bodies covered with, with sheets. Uh, soon after that had happened, I was involved w- with other people, uh, all those who, who were, were not hurt, and we were ripping up pews. The church has got pews and the seating sections are soft, and we were ripping that up, tearing them off and making stretches out of that and carrying the wounded out to ambulances that were beginning to pull up outside. Now, 11 people died that night and 50 were injured to some extent. One of the people who died was a woman called Myrtle Smith. I want to tell you about this just to bring the reality of this to you, real people hurt. And her son, Craig, also a Craig, was a uni student at the time. In fact, I've just been back with my family to South Africa last month, December, and I caught up with Craig. That's Craig and his wife in the church where it all happened. Uh, Pierre and Liesel were teenagers, and you'll see them in the next picture. There they are, and they lost their mum, who was hit by a bullet. And that's them experiencing it, experiencing that loss. Dimitri Makagon was a guest in the church that night. He'd never been to church before. 23 years old, he was a Ukrainian sailor who happened to be a visitor that night. And after this had all happened, as I was involved in helping, I saw him lying on the ground in a pool of blood. He'd lost three limbs. And I thought he was dead. But he was alive. And as that newspaper article will will be showing you, he he actually recovered and he learned to function with prosthetic limbs. What had happened? Why did this happen? Well, we had been attacked by terrorists who were part of a radical political group, a small group in the country. And you will know South Africa has had its problems and they nevertheless attacked even though the date had been set for the country's first elections for the whole population so that minority rule would end. That had been already set. It was obvious that Nelson Mandela was going to become the first black president. And and yet, even though that was all in place, members of this particular group unleashed terror across the country in restaurants, in pubs, and then to the shock of the country in a church. And so what happened that night was unbridled wickedness. It came out later on from this group that they said they wanted white people to feel insecure in the country. But three of the dead were people of color. This was not a segregated church. This was a church that was mixed, and wonderfully so, even during the horrible years of apartheid. 
And so that for me was the most awful experience of evil that I have ever had. Evil and suffering, to some extent, are part of everyday life all over the world. We see human beings inflicting their self-centeredness on other people and causing trauma, causing misery. And then we also see that our world, naturally speaking, is broken. It's full of disasters. We hear of volcanoes and, and earthquakes and tsunamis and bushfires and all these kinds of things. So our world is full of evil and full of suffering. And this raises the question that unbelievers often put forward to rubbish the existence of God. And the question is, well, how can this God you talk about, you say he's good and all-powerful, how can he allow this to happen? They would say, and a number of commentators have said this over the years, if he is good, but he can't stop evil, then he is not all-powerful. And if he is all-powerful and thus has the ability to stop evil, but nevertheless, he just lets it carry on, then he's not good. Well, in the short time that we have this morning, I want to consider some responses. This is a topic that you can read up on and you'll find there's a lot to say. I want to consider some responses. The first thing I want to put to you is that as humans, we don't know everything. We don't know everything. We are dealing with things that are to do with God. We are, we are talking about a spirit. We are talking about a, a, a spirit from beyond this world. And so this is a matter that we humans cannot fully fathom. But just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why a good, all-powerful God might allow this to happen doesn't mean that there can't be a good reason. I want to quote you from Alvin Platinga. Alvin Platinga is an American philosopher, and he illustrates this point like this. He says, if you were to peer into a dog kennel looking for a St. Bernard dog, and you don't see one in the kennel, then it is absolutely reasonable for you to come away and confidently declare there is no St. Bernard dog there. But he says, if you look into the kennel for a strange little insect called a noceum, which is an extremely small insect, although apparently they make themselves known with sharp bites, he says... If you look for one of these insects in this kennel and you don't see any, it is not reasonable to then confidently, confidently declare that there are no little noceums there. You see, we can't be confident when there are elements that we can't see. We are talking about a God of eternity. And so we don't know everything. That's the first thing I want us to put there as we think about this question. The second thing I want to put there is that, you know, other beliefs, other systems in this world do not have satisfactory answers. So the Hindu believes in karma. You get 
what is coming to you because of things of your previous life. And so you can't really declare things to be evil or, or, or to talk about suffering being something that's wrong because it's part of the system. So how does someone in that belief system respond to the horrible things that they will experience in this world? They can't say, oh, well, it's evil because, no, you deserve that. Or the atheist believes that everything that happens is all part of natural processes. So volcanoes erupting and tsunamis destroying beaches and killing people and earthquakes. All these kinds of things are part of natural processes as the, the planet moves on through time as it develops. And, and strong animals, as we were saying last time, they overwhelm weak animals, natural processes, survival of the fittest. And so atheists should, if they are consistent that this is just how it is, they should have no trouble with Putin going into Ukraine. Well, if he is stronger and if he can take them, well, that's just an, the way the world works. It's just natural stuff. And so how does the atheist deal with evil in this world. He will feel it. But if he is consistent with his belief system, it isn't really right for him to lament it. It's just natural. He must just suck it up. And the, and the Hindu just needs to suck it up. It's just, that's their system. But in the Christian faith, we can understand why it is there. And we can then deal with it. We're able to deal with it. Lament it and, and cope with it. So in the remaining three points that I want to put to you as we think about this, I want to put to you things that we do know. We don't know everything about the world beyond this one, but we do know enough to see that God is indeed all-powerful, that stands, that truth stands, and that he's also good. That truth stands. We have enough to be able to cope with the trouble in this world. And so the remaining points are key things we do know. So the third point under this section is that there are three actors. When it comes to evil, the Bible talks about the role of three entities. We have Satan, humans, and God. Let's think about Satan. From the Bible, we know that there is a devil, Satan. We know also that there are evil spirits. And these are entities created by God. They were not evil when they were created. We do not know exactly how they came to rebel against God. But what we do know is that Satan is bent on disqualifying human beings from taking the place that God made for us when he created the world. We are meant to be kings and queens of his creation, ruling and managing, caring for his world. Satan wants us guilty of treason. He led us into rebellion so that we would be counted as guilty for turning against God and then have to be punished and face God's just punishment, which is that we would die. See, he wants the glory of humanity 
to be destroyed by our evil behavior. And so when it comes to the attack on our church, there is a factor in which that was motivated and inspired by the devil. When Jesus rebukes the religious elites in Jerusalem who were against him and they had evil, murderous intentions against him, this is what he said to them in John 8, 44. He said this, You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And so the devil is a factor in evil. Then under the the three actors, let's think about humans. Evil entered the world with the decision on the part of Adam and Eve not to trust God, but rather to follow Satan. They rebelled. And so evil entered our world through humans. And we read a bit about that earlier on in the service when Mark read Genesis chapter 3. And so we bear responsibility for evil coming into our world. In his goodness, God is just. It's because he's good that he must punish rebellion. And his punishment is death. It's physical death and then spiritual death. And that death also is experienced in this world even before we physically die and go on, if we're unforgiven, go on to eternal punishment. It's the sufferings and the troubles in this world. It's the crops that fail. It's the earthquakes and tsunamis. All these are deathly consequences of our evil, our human evil. And because we all have an evil nature, we human beings are selfish and we do horrible things to other people on a scale. We're not necessarily all murderers and abusers, but we all do damage other people. And so the attack on St. James's church was also due to humans, human evil. Humans using their God-given ability to plan and to create and then put that to great evil. There is something very wrong with us as humans. And so we have Satan in all of this. We have humans in all of this. And then there is the question of God. Where was he in all of this? Well, the Bible teaches that nothing happens in this world without God willing it. And so the, the attack on St. James's church back in 1993 was God's will. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, we have this. I will read it to you, this about the crucifixion. I want to read it from verse 22. This is Peter speaking, addressing the crowd. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. And here it comes, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan 
and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yes, the crucifixion was indeed the responsibility of people, of men. And they are called lawless, which means that they are evil. And so their evil killed Jesus. But we also see that it was according to God's plan. So we cannot say that God is standing weakly by on the sidelines, scrambling to come up with some kind of response to the evil things as they come up. He is all-powerful. Evil is not able to control him. And we can say that God uses the evil of Satan and the evil of humans for good, which is the reading that was done by Kat a moment ago, and we'll come to that in a moment. You know, the cross was so evil from the human side of it, and yet from God's side, in his sovereign control over it, it is so good for humanity. So the Bible says there are three actors when it comes to evil. Satan, humans, God. The attack on St. James's church was planned and carried out by evil people who are tied in with an evil being from the spiritual realm. But it was also carried out under the will of a sovereign God. God is not responsible for, for that evil or for any evil, but he is in control of it. But we still ask, why does he let it continue? Surely that's not good. And this brings me to another thing that we do know, and that is, as we saw in the passage, evil is used by God to bring about good. The passage that we read earlier talks about suffering in our world, real suffering. Verse 21 acknowledges that it's a thing, it's a real thing. That um, our world is affected, our creation is in bondage to corruption. It's not working like it should, it's, it's, it's a place of suffering. And while we suffer through these times, the passage says that in God... For the Christian, this is for Christians, that in God, all things work for good. What is the good exactly? What is the good outcome that the Lord works from evil and suffering? Have a look at verses 28 and 29, if you've got that passage open before you. I remind you that, as I've said on other occasions, this is a topical series, so not expounding Uh, large chunks of scripture, but I wanted you to have a look at this. Verses 28 to 29, it says this, And we know that for those who love God, for believers, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Believers. Verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is that saying? It's saying that the hard things that have, uh, it's saying these hard things we experience in life have the effect of shaping us, believers, 
to be strong in our faith. It's put in the language of being conformed to the image of his son. In other words, these things cause us to be more like Jesus. And what will this then achieve? How does verse 29 end? It says Jesus will then be the firstborn among many brothers. Firstborn means older brother. It's family language from those times. So so what it's saying is that believers will then, as they go through hard times and are conformed to the image of Christ, they will, it's saying that they're gonna, they are going to stay on. They're gonna stick on in faith. And they are going to end up with Jesus in eternity. Jesus is going to have many family who've gone through those hard times, been conformed to his image, gone through those suffering times, but they're gonna make it through to the end that this experience will shape them and conform them to his image. We don't know exactly why God let the attack happen on St. James's church. There is mystery in the specifics of every suffering story. We just don't know everything. We are limited. We're not plugged into the heavenly realm. But when I look back on that St. James event, I did see good come out of it. It woke up people. It woke many people up to the reality that our world is actually evil. That there is something deeply wrong with our world. It certainly woke me up that evil is more evil than I had ever imagined. It made me see more deeply that God's judgment day when he will sort out all the wrongs, that that day is right. It made me understand more deeply why we people who are evil need Jesus to take our punishment so that we are forgiven, we are made clean, and we can live forever in his new world as his family. I would say before the attack happened, I was quite naive about how bad the world really is. I did not properly see how badly, how desperately we need the gospel. The Bible teaches that God uses evil for which he's not responsible. He uses it to turn things to good. And I can honestly say to you that I am a stronger Christian and more in tune with the gospel because of what happened that night. And so I want to put it to you, what a mighty and good God who can turn evil to good. Now let's think about one more thing that shows that he is indeed all-powerful and all-good, even though evil is still around in our world. I want us to think about Jesus. If, as the unbeliever thinks, a good and all-powerful God should destroy evil, it, it should not be here, it should be destroyed now, then there is a massive problem for that person. Because you see, he is evil. We are evil in our natural state, all of us. None of us loves the Lord, our God, with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. None of us loves our neighbor as ourselves. And so if God should not allow evil to carry on and should destroy it now, then that unbeliever who accuses God of being weak or being bad should be on on his system, should be, that unbeliever should be destroyed now. 
But the Christian God deliberately came to earth to put himself on the cross to take the penalty that evil people deserve. So that when that judgment does come and he does in his goodness and justice deal with evil, then all those who have believed and received what he did on the cross, they will be safe. And out of his immense goodness, he's holding that day off. He's holding it, delaying it, so that others among evil human beings, like all of us, can benefit from the cross. On the cross, talk about suffering, on, on the cross, the Lord suffered to a point that we will never understand. Yes, he suffered hor- horrible physical death and and it's probably true to say that there have been sufferings that human beings have gone through that physically are probably more painful than what Jesus went through physically. But you see, the point of Jesus on the cross is not so much the physical as the inner agony that he went through. Because he took the weight of our sin on him and was torn from the Father. When you read the Bible, Jesus is presented as a member of the Trinity. He's one of the Trinity which is a profound relationship of three distinct persons. In John 1 verse 18, it describes this deep relationship that the son had with the father as being at the father's side. And when you look at the original language, it means in the bosom, in, the, in, in closeness with the father. It's deep and intimate. In our human lives, we have some idea of what it's like for a relationship to be severed. But we cannot fathom the suffering where this relationship of infinite love over infinite time, no no time, uh, through eternity, we, we cannot fathom what it's like for that to have been severed, even just for that moment when he suffered that on the cross. And this explains why as Jesus was approaching the cross and he went into the garden the night before and 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 he sweated blood he knew what he was about to face, an agony we can't understand. And, and then we get the haunting cry on the cross itself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? Suffering. The Bible says that Jesus came on a rescue mission for creation. He had to pay for our sins so that someday he can indeed End evil without ending us. And so there will be an end to evil, all achieved by a good, all-powerful God. And so if I think about the atheist, I want to say, Mr. Atheist, what do you do when you face the death of your child in a horrible car accident because of a drunk. What do you do with that? You must not mourn. There is no God. Everything is just part of natural processes, material things, that's all there is. And so you must just suck it up and get on with life. But Christian, we can truly mourn Because we know that evil and suffering are not natural processes of a material world. We know that it is bad. And we know where it comes from. 
And so we can indeed lament because it's wrong, it's bad. It's not actually natural in terms of, of, of God and his, and his design for the world. And we have hope that it's not forever. Because we see God in Christ suffering so horribly so that we can be free of evil in this new world that is to come. And so the real question is not, why does a good and all-powerful God allow evil? No, the real question that people need to hear is this. Have you come to the one who is good, who is so good that he will finally remove all evil because of his own suffering? Have you placed yourself under the protection of the cross so that on judgment day you are immune to that judgment and you will be safe in a world that will never see evil again? Have you done that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your clear word and in it where you have shown us your love for us as human beings. That at great cost, you have made it that we, if we are trusting in Jesus, are free from judgment and free from all the effects of evil in the new world. Thank you that as we go through pain in this life, we can look forward with real hope to a time when it will be no more. Thank you for paying the price so that we can have this freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.